And looking out this morning, I see a lot of familiar faces of people who were youth sponsors when I was in the youth group, and many people who have played a part in my life in helping me become the person that I am today. And so for that, I'm very much thankful. Um, how many of you have ever tried to explain something, an object to someone, that they didn't know about? Great, I'm the only one. Okay, this is going to be fun. Something that they hadn't seen before, or maybe they kind of had an idea, and you had to try and use your words to paint a picture for them of what you were trying to explain. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Haiti with a group here at Northside to do a mission trip, and we had the opportunity to interact and play with some of the Haitian kids and adults, and a lot of times they would ask us questions. What's America like? What's your house like? Where do you live? And oftentimes I found myself searching for words to try to explain to these people something that they had never seen before. For example, a refrigerator. How do you even begin to describe what a refrigerator is to someone who doesn't even have electricity in their house? That we have these little outlets on the walls that you plug things into and it powers them. And a refrigerator is just this big box with doors on it and somehow it keeps our food cold and frozen. And then some of the refrigerators have a little box in the front of them with this little lever and you can put a cup up against it and out of it comes fresh, clean purified drinking water. That's like a miracle to them. And then because we as Americans are so picky, there's another button on the door we can push. And you push your cup up against it, and out of it comes like hard water <laughs> that's frozen. And you're telling this to people who live in 100-degree weather, and for them to fathom something that's cold and ice to make our drinks cold. You see, it's something that they can't really understand because our worlds are so different. The same is true when we came back to the States. People would say, how was Haiti? How was your trip? And once again, I was left trying to find words to paint them a picture of the things that I saw with my eyes. That there was a hurricane there, and that thousands upon thousands of people were living on this mountainside in tents. But not like tents that we think of today when we go camping. But like sticks, tree stumps, something the equivalent of like a bed sheet draped over it. And they were living in them. And that as we were walking by some of these tents, there was a family outside one of their tents that was boiling mangoes. And it's not because they loved and really enjoyed boiled mangoes. It's because they didn't have anything to eat. And in fact, they didn't even feed these mangoes to the pigs because they were so gross. And so they were trying to boil these mangoes to get them somewhat edible to eat them. You see, I can try and paint a picture for you of the things that I saw with my eyes, but unless you were there with me, unless you were there in my shoes, you truly can't understand it. You can't fathom it because our worlds, they're just so very different. How many of you have seen the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Okay, the premise of the show is that the TV show comes in, they send a family off to Disneyland, and the community and some people come and they tear down their house, build a new house that is just custom designed for them. Because most of the time there's been a medical change or a medical need in one of the family members and the house is no longer suitable. So they design this house, they build this house specifically designed for the family. And there's the great part of the show where the family pulls back into town in a limousine and there's a big bus that's blocking the house so they can't see it. All of the community is there. 
the people who helped build the houses there. And then there's the part in the show that everyone loves, and they yell, move that bus. And the bus pulls out, and the family, for the very first time, gets a glimpse of the home custom tailor-made just for them. And you see, I think that's where we find ourselves today in the book of Revelation. John, getting a glimpse of a home, custom tailor-made just for us by God. Didn't get a full picture, but he got a glimpse. And in Revelation, we see John trying to paint a picture with his words of something that he saw that is so foreign to us. That man, unless we were there with him, we can't truly understand. We can't truly fathom it because our world in heaven is just so very different. You see, there's a lot of buzz in our culture now about end times and heaven. There are, if you turn on the channel or the TV, watch a movie, whatever, chances are you might run across something dealing with the end times. There are so many shows on today like Doomsday Preppers, The Walking Dead, which probably no one here watches, documentary How to Survive the End of the World, movies like War of the Worlds, The Day After Tomorrow, Zombieland. The list could go on. Our culture is intrigued about end times, about the end of the world. The same is true about heaven. Author David Platt poses the question, do you know what the best-selling evangelical book of the past decade is? Not the Bible, but a book titled Heaven is for Real. It had been on New York Times bestseller list for 126 consecutive weeks and sold over 8 million copies. Now, Heaven is for Real, that's not to be confused with another book titled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, another book, My Journey to Heaven, What I Saw and How It Changed My Life, Flight to Heaven, To Heaven and Back, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Nine Days in Heaven. The list can go on and on. And one of the disturbing things about this is that several of these authors later on have come back and said, you know what? It's not true. It's a lie. I didn't go to heaven. I made it up. And so there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of skepticism about the end times and about heaven, what it looks like. And then we're tossed the book of Revelation in the Bible, and we open it up, and man, there's some crazy things in there. And so with heaven and end times, there's a lot of confusion. What is, it, what is it like? When is it going to happen? There's a lot of questions. But you know, there's one thing that I know for sure from Revelation, from these things. That at the end of time, our God wins. At the end of time, when everything's over, our God wins. See, in chapter 1 of Revelation, we find a couple things about the book. The author is John, the Apostle John, and in verse 9 he tells us that he is on the island of Patmos. Now he's not there on some great vacation, relaxing, but he's been exiled. He's been sent away for preaching the gospel message. Patmos is located in the Aegean Sea between Greece and Turkey. It's about 50 miles west of the city of Ephesus. And in verse 11 we see that John is writing the book of Revelation to the church, seven churches in Asia Minor. And I think it's important for us to realize that during this time, the church was under intense, severe persecution. Things weren't looking too good for the church. John was the last living apostle. He's now in exile. The church is experiencing great tragedy 
And things aren't looking too bright. See, I don't think Revelation was written to be a book of confusion. Rather, a book of hope. Hope to the church then. That despite the things that they were experiencing, there's hope. Hope to us now that despite the things that we experience in our own life, despite the things that we experience here in our nation, around the globe, that at the end of time, there's hope. We have something to look for. That one day everything will change. Everything will be made new. Revelation chapter 1 Verse 5 says, And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. The book of Revelation is trustworthy and true. John's words are trustworthy and true. And because of that, I think there are three truths we can take from the book of Revelation. The first truth is that God will fulfill his promise. For the past 31 weeks, we've been going through the story and seeing time and time again how God fulfills his promise that he makes to his people. Despite how we as humanity respond to him, God is faithful and he fulfills his promise. He's fulfilled his promises to Noah, to Abraham, to Sarah, to Isaac, to Moses, to Daniel, to David. Once again, we could go on with this list. In fact, in Scripture, there are over 3,500 promises made by God. God is a man of his word. He keeps his promise. And because he does, that means we will get a new body. We will have a new body. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. We will get a new body. There's a story of a country farmer who ventured into the big city for the first time in his life. He brought with him his wife and his son. They pulled up into the heart of the city and saw skyscrapers and other huge buildings. They parked in in front of one of these big buildings. And the farmer said to his son, boy, come with me. We're going to go get a city newspaper. They went inside the building, and they were mesmerized by everything that they saw. But one thing really caught their attention. They saw these two shiny walls, and while they were staring at them, they opened up. There was an older lady standing outside with a cane, and she walked inside of this small room. The farmer and his son looked at each other all of a sudden, and the two doors closed again. They'd never seen anything like it in their life. As they continued to watch, they saw these little circular things above the walls, that started lighting up, and they had numbers on them, and they didn't quite know what to make about it. About 30 seconds after the older lady went in, all of a sudden, the two shiny walls moved back open, and out came a beautiful 24-year-old brunette. The father said to his son, boy, go get your mama. Now, we are promised a new body, like instant transformation. And our culture is so fixated on our physical appearance, and we will go to great lengths, and we will pay a lot of money to change the way that we look. The problem is is that as time goes on, culture's definition of beauty and perfection changes. And in fact, around the globe, from continent to continent, the definition of beauty sometimes is completely different. But one day, we will have a new body, instant transformation. One with no more disease, no more pain, 
no more sickness, a brand new, as Philippians says, glorious body. It also means that we'll have a new home. A new home. John 14, verses 1 through 3 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And in Revelation chapter 4, we see John explaining some of the things that he saw. And he's trying to paint this picture. He goes on to explain these wrappings and the ribbons, the gates of pearl, the streets of pure transparent gold, the walls that are comprised of precious stones like sapphires. There's a crystal river flowing down the center of the city. He's trying to paint a picture of what he saw. And we can do our best to read it and imagine it. But I don't think we can truly understand, we can truly fathom it unless we were there with him. While John focuses on some of the things that are in heaven, I know some of the things that won't be in heaven at all. No more pain, no more suffering, no more war, no more depression, no more anger, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more divorce, no more tears, no more flag-draped caskets, no more tragedy. Does that not sound perfect? God promises us a new home. God's a man of his word. He's fulfilled every single promise, but there's one left. He promises to return. And because he will return, we will one day stand before God. Throughout scripture, we see that God will make a judgment. He will make a decision at the end of time to decide our eternity, where we will go. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is one of those. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We each will receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil that we have done in this earthly body. Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. And the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Revelation chapter 4. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly, I was in the spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. We, one day, will be judged. We will stand before God, believers and unbelievers, all of us. Billy Graham tells a story. He says, a number of years ago, I was stopped by for driving too fast in the speed zone. And in the courtroom, I pleaded guilty. The judge was not only friendly, but also a little embarrassed for me to be in his court. The fine was $10. If he let me go free, it would be inconsistent with justice. The penalty had to be, had to be paid either by me or someone else. Judgment is consistent with love. A God of love must be a God of justice. It is because God loves that he is just. His justice balances his love and makes his acts of both love and justice 
meaningful. See, we serve a loving God. We serve a just God. And because of that, we will stand before him one day. And because we will stand before him one day, you will need to be ready. You will need to be ready. Revelation chapter 21 verse 7 says, All those, all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. The cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There's a story about a preacher who was getting fired up during one of his sermons he was giving, and he thundered that every member of this church is a sinner. When he hollered this a second time for emphasis, there was a man sitting on the very back row. He had a broad smile come across his face. The preacher thought he hadn't gotten through, so he cranked up the volume and said, Each and every member of this church is a sinner deserving hell. Still nothing. Actually, the man smiled even bigger now. So the preacher tried the direct approach. He said, man, you in the back there, didn't you hear me? I said that every member of this church deserves to go to hell. This man started laughing. He said, what do you have to say for yourself? He said, I'm not a member of this church. (laughs) The bottom line is, That at the end of time, there's two places that we will be. One of two places we will be. Heaven or hell. A lot of people like to believe in heaven, but say that hell isn't very real. But if heaven is real, then hell is real. And at the end of time, when the apocalyptic dust settles... You and I will find ourselves in one of those places. The problem is, the dilemma is, we don't know when that time will be. You don't know when that time will be. In fact, Matthew chapter 24 says, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. That we will be living our life. We'll be going to work. We'll be going to school. We'll be playing sports. Ladies, you'll be shoe shopping. Men, you'll be watching sports on ESPN. We will be living our life like any other day, just like it was in Noah's day. And then it will happen, just like it did with Noah. The Son of Man comes like a thief in the night when you least expect it. That's how it will be when Jesus comes. In John chapter 14, like we read earlier, Jesus has left to prepare a place for us, and he promises to come back for us, which means that heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. So my question to you today is, are you prepared? Are you ready? 
Are your loved ones prepared? Are they ready? 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For God says, At just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Here's what I want you to hear. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. You see, if you understand that over the past 31 weeks, we've looked at the beginning of time where God created this perfect world. He put two human beings there. And after that, sin entered the world. And it continues to remain in the world because of the choices we make today. And God cannot be with sin at all. He cannot be in the presence of sin. But he so desperately wants to be with us that he sent his son Jesus, who is without sin, to die on a cross for our penalty. And if we choose to believe in him and put our trust in him and our faith in him, then we can be with him. You see, if you understand that, then right here, today is the day. Because no one knows the day or the hour that Christ will return. God will fulfill his promise. We will all stand before God. And you will need to be ready. From these three truths, I'm going to leave you with two questions. The first question is, what will you say? What will you say? See, if God is a man of his word and he fulfills his promise and he's going to come back and one day we will all stand before him, what will you say? Or better yet, what can you say? And the second question I have for you is, who will you tell? Who will you tell? You see, how selfish would it be of us to go through this life with this life-saving gospel message and keep it to ourselves? How selfish. So my question is, who will you tell? Who have you told? Who should you have told? What will you say? And who will you tell? Today, we close out our series on the story. Let's see, the story isn't over. It's a chance for you to join the story. It's a chance for you to be the story. It's a chance for you to live the story. Max Lucado, in his book titled Come Thirsty, shares about an encounter with a man by the name of Joe Albright. He says, Joe Albright is a fair and fearless West Texas rancher. In Andrews County, where I was raised, everyone knew him. One of Joe's sons, James, and I were best friends in high school. We played football together. On Friday night after the out-of-town game, James invited me to stay at his house. By the time we reached his property, the hour was way past midnight, and he hadn't told his father he was bringing anyone home. Mr. Albright didn't know my vehicle. He didn't know me, so when I stepped out of the car in front of his house, he popped on a floodlight and aimed it right at my face. Through the glare, I saw a block of a man, and I heard his deep voice. Who are you? I gulped. My mind moved at the speed of cold honey. I started to say my name, but didn't. Mr. Albright doesn't know me. My only hope was that his son James would speak up. A glacier could have melted before he did so. But finally he interceded. It's okay, Dad. That's my friend Max. He's with me. The light went off. Mr. Albright threw open the door. Come in, boys. Come in. You see, it's nothing that Max 
did that got him into the father's house. And it's nothing that Max said that got him into his father's house. It's only because Max knew the son of the father. And the same is true for us. There's nothing that we can say. There's nothing that we can do. But it's only because we know the son of the father that we can get into heaven. Only because we know the son of the father. That's it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and see it speak into our lives and intercede in our lives. God, we're thankful for your son and for you sending him to the cross to die the death that we deserved and spend eternal punishment. God, I pray for us today as we ponder these two questions. Maybe we aren't ready. Maybe we haven't given our life to you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present and work in their life. Because we don't know the time or hour. And if we have, I pray that we would be ambitious, ambitious about communicating this gospel message to our people around us, to our family, our co-workers, our friends, the cashier at Walmart, the people walking down the street, because we have something so great that you've given us, and we want to share it with everyone. We love you, and we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. We want to give you time to respond. Today is the day of salvation, right now. Let's stand. Please come if you have a decision.